Well, he's an early riser, so he has to get to bed, so that's fair enough. All right, then. After all that, I want you to come with me, please, to uh, Luke chapter 17. This is where we were this morning. Luke chapter 17. And we'll read the same verse that we read this morning. Same two verses, verses 20 and 21 of Luke's gospel, chapter 17. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. For the kingdom of God is within you. Now today, this morning and this evening, uh, we are talking about the kingdom of God. And this kingdom, which is invisible, it's a spiritual kingdom. This morning we spoke of its potential, its privileges, provisions, its power, its permanence, and its preeminence. Now how do we become part of this great kingdom of God? What makes us citizens? Well, Jesus explains to us in John 3, 5 to 7, and Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said unto you, you must be born again. The moment that you are born again, you become part of the kingdom of God on earth. I've explained this morning that the church is not the kingdom of God, but the church on earth is how the kingdom of God is expressed on earth at this present time. The kingdom of God is invisible. It is within us. Eventually, when Christ does return, the kingdom of God will be visible on the earth, and Christ will rule and He will reign visibly on the earth. Now, what is the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, or the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Both these invisible kingdoms are active right now as we speak all over the world. Well, first of all, all men on earth, when I say men, I'm speaking generically, I mean men and women, boys and girls, everybody. All men on earth are representatives of either one or other of these two kingdoms. All men are governed and ruled by either one or other of these two kingdoms. Everybody is under the influence of either one of these two kingdoms. It is inescapable. So what are then, and what is this kingdom? What is it like? What are its rules? What are the laws of the kingdom? Either we will serve the God of this world or we will serve the God of the kingdom of God, one or the other. So let's look tonight at these two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. Now here is a scripture, and this scripture absolutely, clearly, distinctly shows the two fundamental laws that govern these two kingdoms. These are the primary laws that govern these two kingdoms. Romans chapter 8, verse 2, Paul says, For the law 
of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The kingdom of God on earth. What is the primary law that runs it and rules it? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What is the primary law that rules and runs the kingdom of this world? The law of sin and death. The kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. Ever since man fell in the Garden of Eden, from that moment, this law, this law, the law of sin and death, this principle, this process of the law of sin and death has been active and it has been inherent in all men everywhere ever since that moment. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. For since by man came death. You remember when Adam fell in the garden? How that death entered his very nature. Now when the Bible speaks of death, it's not just talking about physical death. Physical death is when the spirit leaves the body. But when the Bible talks about death, when Adam, God warned him, the day you eat this fruit, you shall surely die. Now he didn't die for many, many centuries later, physically. But he died in the sense that he was separated from God. And so when the Bible speaks of death in the Bible, primarily when it speaks of it in a spiritual sense, it's talking about being separated from God. One of the byproducts, of course, of this uh, law of sin and death was that men physically die. Eventually, all men die. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And the word man there is capitalized. So speaking about Christ. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now think about this just for a moment. That ever since Adam fell in the garden, from that point onwards, death had entered into man. Man became mortal, became frail, and eventually died. And every human being from Adam right till today, every human being has been smitten with that death. And untold millions, if not billions, have died. This crust of this earth is one vast graveyard. Not only did men die, but animals died, and birds died, insects died, everything died. Because that law of sin and death was operative. So this whole crust of this whole earth is one vast graveyard. That's the effect that sin had on the physical side of things. So this law of sin and death, by the way, the only two people since Adam until now, the only two that escaped death was Enoch and Elijah who were translated. That's all. They're the only two. Now, this law of sin and death is universal, it's impartial, it's indiscriminate, it's unrelenting, and it's continuing even as we speak. Now, as far as nature is concerned, we see the immediate effect in the fall whenever God cursed the ground for Adam's sake. In Genesis chapter 3, listen to what God says here. 
Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. From dust you are. And to dust you shall return. Now, I think that it's interesting that what science today calls the second law of thermodynamics, I think it bears a tremendous similarity to the law of sin and death. Now, what is the second law of thermodynamics? Well, basically, it's any closed system that's left to itself will deteriorate. It will fall into ruin if it's left by itself. Iron rusts, wood rots, concrete crumbles, bodies decay, decay, stars explode. Any garden that's left to itself will be overgrown with weeds. That's why young David Henderson here has such a busy time out doing people's gardens. He's making an absolute fortune out of it too. He probably charges two and a half for it. Do you? No, you don't. No, he's okay. But that's the reason why. Because if it's left to itself, it deteriorates. We grow old. Our bodies, the outward man, the Bible says, perishes, even though the inward man is renewed day by day. You see, this is the law of sin and death. By the way, that's an argument against evolution. Evolutions believe that life goes from simplicity to complexity, when in effect it's going the opposite way. It's gone from complexity back down to ruin and degradation and destruction. Now, this law of sin and death that the Bible talks about was the primary law that runs the kingdom of this world. It also produces other problems for mankind. It's made as rebellious, it's made as lawless, sinful, wicked, godless. All men have the propensity to sin, to rebel, to break God's laws, to do the wrong thing. It is inherent within us. And any of you that has children growing up will know fine rightly what we're talking about. They soon learn to rebel, don't they? It's part of human nature. Verse 23 of Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. See, here's the law of sin and death. It follows. It's natural. It's the order of the kingdom of this world. Now, this is what the Bible calls natural man. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural, natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, in other words, those who live in the kingdom of this world are blind to the things of God unless the Spirit of God opens their eyes. Unless we tell them the truth, 
and the Spirit of God opens their eyes of their understanding that they begin to see. Otherwise, they're blind to it. Because the Bible also says that God of this world blinds the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine. And so we see there's a law at work here. And they do not perceive, receive the things of the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to them. Neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, we read this this morning in another context. Paul says, And you he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. So there's that law that we walked and according to it. According to the prince of the power of the air. And just like the kingdom of God has got a ruler, which is Christ, the kingdom of this world has got a ruler, which is the Satan, the evil one. So he says, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we were once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. By nature we were children of wrath, just as the others. So you see then how this law of sin and death, how it has impacted man, has impacted nature, has impacted the very way that we walk in this world, impacts our mind, our thinking, our worldview, everything. So how does natural man walk in this world when the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness to him? Whenever this very law of sin and death is in his very nature, how does man then, natural man, walk in this world? Well, natural man is governed by his physical senses, governed by his physical feelings, governed by his baser instincts, because that's all we know, because we haven't been changed by the power of God, because we haven't seen the light of God. That's all we know. We were born with that. It was our nature. It's the way we were born. People say, it was just the way I was born. And, and to a degree, that's true. It's our nature. But of course, lots of people like sin, and they want that sin to continue. But whenever we meet Christ, whenever we come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, then we begin to change because then we have a different nature. We begin to receive the very nature of Christ within us. Now, we walk by faith in the kingdom of God. They walk by sight in the kingdom of this world. Just the way that we walk, we walk by sight, by our feelings, by what we thought, and by our mindset, by our actions, by our habits, by our feelings, until we met Christ. And suddenly, your life changes, and you see things differently, and you act differently, and you talk differently, and you think differently. Because there's a new nature comes. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. All things become new. We've left the kingdom of darkness. We've come into the kingdom of light. Now what about the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is governed by a wholly different set of laws. Wholly different set of principles. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It can only be spiritually discern. It too is invisible. It too has a ruler. It too has a primary law that governs it overall. 
It's the law of life which is in Christ Jesus. Now this law of life which is in Christ Jesus manifests itself in different and various ways in our lives as we go on in Christ. And one of the things it does is it brings humility. Humility. There's not much humility seen in the world. We see lots of arrogance. We see lots of pride. We see lots of boasting and self-serving. But God wants to see humility. That's why in Matthew 5 verse 3, Jesus, in those Beatitudes which somebody said they were the beautiful attitudes, and they are. That's why Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean, blessed are the poor in spirit? Now, notice he didn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. But what does he mean by poor in spirit? He could have equally said blessed are the humble in spirit. Blessed are those who know within their old human nature (laughs) that they're nothing. That they're absolutely nothing in their old human nature. Blessed are those. That's what he's talking about. To have that humility, that to stand before God and say, God, without you, I am nothing. And no matter what I achieved, it means nothing at the end of the day. Whenever you have that spirit of humility, that's living in the kingdom of God. That's showing signs of the kingdom of God. Do you remember in Luke chapter 18, you remember the two people that come into the temple to pray? One was a Pharisee, one was a publican or a tax collector. Remember how the Pharisee stood in the corner boasting of himself? How many times in the week he he fasted and how he tithed? And how he was not like other men, adulterers, extortioners, and not like that tax collector over there. Because that's who he was thinking about when he said, and not like tax collectors. And then Jesus says, but the tax collector, he wouldn't even lift his head up to heaven. And he beat his breast and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here was a man who knew who he was, who recognized his impoverished situation before God, who was a beggar before God and recognized it. And Jesus says, I tell you which one went out justified at that temple. It was the tax collector. Remember the two thieves on the cross, Luke 23, and how that for a while, both of them were reviling Jesus. Both were mocking him like everybody else around the cross. And then something happened to one of them. And even though the other was still reviling and mocking Jesus, the other one said, no, this is wrong. He says, we justly deserve what we're getting, but this man has done nothing amiss. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And there was that humility of spirit. There was that being poor in spirit. Do you know that you would never become born again until you're poor in spirit? Until you're willing to admit and acknowledge that you're a sinner before a holy God. And it's when you get to that point that you realize there's nothing that you can absolutely do that's going to change God, that you'll never get into heaven until you admit you're a sinner before God and that you need His salvation. And that's when your life begins to change at that point. 
Remember in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, how there's that tremendous image of Christ standing in the midst of those churches. And for most of them, he's rebuking. Some he commends, but most he rebukes. And he comes to the very last one, the church of Laodicea in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Whenever you can get somebody who feels self-sufficient, who feels I'm all right, I don't need your gospel because I'm okay. I believe that God will let me into heaven. When you get somebody in that position and you can show them from the word of God that they haven't got a leg to stand on before a holy God, that they are actually are poor and wretched and naked and blind, it's only then that they begin to realize that they need a savior. And so here's this humility within the kingdom of God. And we need much more of that, don't we? So many times, even as believers, we can become arrogant and boastful and proud. But in the kingdom of God, God looks for humility. God looks for those who will bend the knee. Remember the story Jesus told about the man who came into the feast? He walked right up to the head of the table and sat down where he had no business. And the host sent him back again. He had no business up there. It wasn't his place. But he was so proud and arrogant. He thought, I deserve that. But he didn't. But the man who comes in and sits at the bottom of the table, the host says, come you up here and sit beside me. Because <laughs> he's shown humility. And then there's a law in this kingdom, which is the law of reciprocity. That's a big fancy word for giving and receiving. Reciprocity, giving and receiving. Matthew seven twelve, Jesus says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. There's the golden rule that we talk about. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Luke 6.38, give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will men will be, over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. There is the law of reciprocity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is writing here, and it just so happens that he's talking about an offering, an offering for the relief of the poor back in Jerusalem. And he's writing to the Corinthian church. He spends two chapters talking about it, by the way. But then he comes into chapter 9. and verse 6, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly 
will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, not because somebody's twisting your arm up your back, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for your food supply and multiply the seed that you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. And so there is a law, there is a principle in the kingdom of God and it's called reciprocity. It's called giving and receiving. And all of us has entered into that to one degree or other. It may not be financial. It may be some other way. It may be given time. It may be given effort. It may be given labor. But God has got a way of repaying. God has got a way of giving back to the same measure that we give. It shall be measured back to us again. And then there's another law in this kingdom of God, the law of perseverance. The law of perseverance in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus on his great sermon on the mount in verse 7 of Matthew 7, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Now the tense that all that's written in means that it's a continuous tense. It's keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Don't give up asking or seeking or knocking. That's what he's saying. And all of us at some point or other has given up on something, haven't we? We prayed for something for a while. We believed in something for a while. We did something for a while, but we didn't keep at it and at it and at it. And Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Paul says in Galatians 6 and 9, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Sometimes you lose heart, don't you? If you don't see any results, you lose heart. It says, don't do that. Even if you're weary in doing good, even if you're tired in doing good, keep at it. Because he says, you shall reap in due season if you do not lose heart. So saints of God, do not lose heart tonight. Keep on giving. Keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on keeping on until you get the answer that you need. Don't give up. And then another law within this kingdom is the law of use. The law of use. Matthew chapter 25. Jesus gives a parable here. 
We'll be finished in a moment. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and to each according to his own ability. Now, pay special attention to that. It's important. Each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. Likewise, he had received and gained two, two also. Sorry. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers that at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. And so for everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have or who did not do with what he should have done with it, even that which he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing. Of teeth. Now, even though the word talents there does mean money, and even though Jesus used that as an illustration that we fully understand, but the principle of the parable is still the same. Whether it's our abilities, whether it's our giftings, uh, whether it's the opportunities that God gives to us, that we use them, that we multiply them that they prosper in our hands because one day we shall have to give an account. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now notice here, one got five, one got two, one got one. But notice, it was according to his own ability. So the master knew what he was doing when he gave the one man five talents. He knew what he was doing when he gave the other man two talents. He knew what he was doing when he gave the other man just the one talent. He knew their abilities. He knew what they were capable of. And listen, when God gives us abilities and God, by His grace, gives abilities, 
You may be just a one-talent person. And if God has just given you one talent, He knows it's all you can handle. That's not a put-down. But you're going to be responsible for that one talent. You can't look at the guy with five and say, well, I wish I had five. I've only got one. Listen, if the guy with the one talent, if he had done the same as the one with the two and the one with the five, he'd have got the same answer. He would have got, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. I'll make you ruler over things. He would have got the same answer, but he didn't. He didn't use it. He didn't employ it. He didn't take the time or the effort or the endeavor. So what am I saying? I'm saying that within the kingdom of God, God gives ability. And God gives talents. And God gives anointings. And God gives graces. And he gives them severally as he wills. He knows our makeup. He knows our personality. He knows what we can do. He knows what we can't do. So he gives us according to who we are. And all we are responsible for is the bit that God gives us. I'm not responsible for somebody else. I'm responsible for what God has given me. And I've got to use it. Now, John Calvin talked about common grace. In other words, God has given to every human being, saved or unsaved, He's given certain natural abilities and talents. Common grace does that. He gave to Einstein an incredible brain, an IQ of over 200 and something, an incredible mind. And he had to be responsible for that incredible mind. And we got responsible for what he's given us. And so he looks at us and he says, you're responsible. It's yours. What you do with it. Now there could be somebody maybe outside the church, a Christian, and maybe they're a business person. Maybe they're a have, have got a business going or they're involved in other things and they're brilliant at it and they're a five-talent person outside the church, but inside the church they're just a one-talent person. But that's okay. That's okay. God will hold them responsible for those five talents outside the church, but he'll hold them responsible for the one talent inside the church. There may be somebody and they're just a one-talent person outside the church, but they're a five-talent person inside the church. But that's okay. Look at your life. Say, God, what am I responsible for? What gifting do I have? You'll find very often, he doesn't have to, but you'll find very often what you're naturally good at that God can find a way to use that in his kingdom. Often he does that. And so here is this law of use. And what does it say? For everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance, but him who does not have, he who does nothing with it, even that which he has will be taken away. Luke twelve forty eight. To whom much is given, much will be required. So there is a law of use that God expects us to do. Then finally, there's many more, but just finally, there is faith. There is faith. Without faith, Hebrews eleven six, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, 
and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So this law that God puts in her heart, this thing called faith, this is how we touch God. This is how we reach out to God. This is what pleases God's heart. You know, whenever Jesus was here, do you remember how he said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And it came at the most, from the most unexpected quarter, and it so pleased the Lord that he saw faith in the most unexpected quarter. Hadn't even seen it in all of Israel, even among his own disciples. But when he saw it, he recognized it, and he commended it. There's something about faith that pleases the heart of God because it's trusting God. Faith is trusting God. It's saying, God, no matter what I see in the natural, I'm going to trust you just the same. That pleases the great heart of God. Faith is a spiritual step. It's responding to God at our deepest level. It's saying, God, I trust you. I believe you. I'm going to count on you. I'm going to put all of my weight on you and believe you. And when you do that, it pleases God so much because it's responding to Him at our deepest level. Faith is not just a, a step of the heart, it's a step of the mind. And this is why Romans 12 and 2 tells us that we have got to make sure in Romans 10, 17, we've got to make sure that our mind is renewed by the Word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. And so it involves our heart, it involves our mind, but it also is a physical thing because we've got to do something. We've got to take a step. It demands an action. This is why the Bible says faith without works is dead. When you get saved, you get saved by grace through faith. That's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The night or the day or the moment you get saved, it was God's grace saved you, but you had to take a step of faith. You had to do something. You had to pray a prayer and believe it. Then you confessed it with your mouth. You had to do something. And faith is an action thing. It requires movement. It requires us to do something. In James chapter 2, and we'll be through here just in one second. In James chapter 2, In verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If her brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead." But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So James is getting the balance between the two things. He says our faith will be evident by our works. And so this is part of this law of the kingdom of God that God has given to us. Faith will fire you. will get your adrenaline going, spiritually speaking. It will forge you. It will shape you. It will make you. It will mold you. Faith will force you. It will make demands of you. It will cause you to have pressures, healthy pressures. We don't seem to like any pressures or any tensions, but faith puts you in a place that brings some pressure, and it's a healthy pressure to trust and believe. Faith will further you. It will take you further in your Christian life, and faith will fulfill you because He is the author and He is the finisher of our faith. This is the kingdom of God that is within you. This is the kingdom of God that we belong to. And everything we need, as I said this morning, to declare the kingdom of God, we have got in Christ Jesus. What a kingdom it is. What a great kingdom that we belong to tonight. Amen? We're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we are privileged tonight to belong to the kingdom of God. We thank you that by your death on the cross and by our accepting, accepting that death on the cross, we have received new life. We have received the very life of God within us. And you have planted us in the kingdom of God. Thank you for that. And thank you for the life that you have given. Lord, help us to declare your kingdom. Help us to preach your kingdom. Help us to testify to your kingdom. Help us to witness to your kingdom. Always remembering that you are the king of the kingdom. And so we give you thanks today. We bless you for your mercies. We thank you for the gift of life that you have imparted. Lord, we were lost. We were bound for hell. And now we're bound for heaven, and we thank you for that. That was your grace, and we simply believed it by faith. So thank you for that, Lord, tonight. Bless you for your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to testify of your goodness every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.